The Fake Show Podcast is brought to you by Hutchison and Stefan, The Food Connection, LV.com, Mr. Antenna, and our newest sponsor, Brew City Brand Apparel. I sat down with the original members of the band Chicago and listened to great stories about the road, amongst other things. It gave me the opportunity to sit down with the people that knew him intimately and spent more time with him than I ever had the chance to. So now for the first time, we have a little sneak peek of the film. Jerry was this big, bigger than life Norwegian. He was actually one of the more amusing guys I've ever met. He was a kind, loving man. And his friendship was just something that you treasured. It was a very experimental time in music. Hendrix was completely dumbfounded by Terry's. Well, when we first heard, heard Jimi Hendrix play, we, we thought he was sounding like Terry. I remember, <clears throat> excuse me. Do you want to go, do you want to go there with this? And there are very few people that I would feel comfortable enough talking in these terms in any way other than with you. Says, yeah, and Terry was playing with the gun. There's that little stupid little automatic he had. Here I go again. Why does the ghost of love still haunt me? Scenes from the upcoming documentary, The Terry Kath Experience, A Daughter's Journey, the documentary by Michelle Kath Sinclair, who was only two when her dad died in a tragic self-inflicted accident at the age of 32, and that was back in 1978. This film is actually about Michelle discovering the legacy of her father, who she barely knew. Welcome to the show, and I have to ask you right off the bat, how are you and how is your family feeling about uh, Chicago? finally getting inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Oh, they're loving it. Everyone's really excited. How do you think your dad would have felt about this? I'm sure he would have just been over the moon. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. To be honest, in such a way. Yeah, it's just amazing how long it took, I guess, to me. It's always been a surprise at how long they took to put those guys in there. Seriously. I had heard interviews recently with you, and you talked about how even though you were two years old, you still had a memory or two about your dad, which that that was the time when he passed. Can you tell me anything about that? Um, oh, gosh. It always relates back to his lodge and the lodge that they had in Wisconsin, his parents. Oh, the family had a lodge up north? Yeah. The family had a lodge up north in Wisconsin. And for some reason, a lot of my memories after my dad always are there. Yeah. Or, or around that time, that has to do with there. So there's some kind of connection there um, relating to him and the boats and driving. I think that that's up in the Manaqua area. Our family used to go up there in that area as well. And it's the type of place that you dream about anyway, even when you're an adult, because it's just so beautiful up there. Mm-hmm. So when did you, Michelle, start asking your mom questions about your dad? When? How old do you figure you were? I think that I was always asking questions about my dad. My mom talked about him a lot, and he was a huge presence in our household in the sense that she, I guess with the way that he passed, she didn't want that to be like a a shocking thing I find out from someone else. Right. And also, I mean, he had things that were left behind that I would kind of play with. (laughs) You know, there was cool looking awards and there was um, gold records and there was 
things like that that as a kid, you know, I kind of play with and then want to know what they were. I know that you are concerned about people who are involved with substance abuse and and your dad and the whole rest of the band went through that period in the late 60s, 70s. You're of the opinion that that had to do more with what caused him being gone now because one thing led to another. Yeah, I mean, even in some of the interviews I did, most people expressed that my dad and his guns was never, uh, no one was ever concerned. They trusted him, but he had a pretty good knowledge about it. But I think, you know, when you start mixing your guns and drinking and whatnot, then you have problems because there's no way you can keep track of everything. Yeah. <laughs> so it, they don't mix at all. And who knows? I mean, that's the thing, you know, you remove one of those elements from the equation and we probably have a different scenario. So I don't know what you, you know, everyone's going to have their own opinion about what they would think is the culprit. I've talked to probably most of the guys in the band over the years, and, and I think Lee Lochnane and, and Robert Lamb and, and some of the rest say that there are definitely periods of time that they can't even remember because of substance abuse. Yeah. I think Lee was telling me that he didn't even remember putting out a certain album because they were just so obliterated half the time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Man. So in, in order to I, I talk to the director of the Wrecking Crew documentary, I don't know if you've seen that yet, but um, part of the whole business of making a documentary, especially one that involves music licensing, is you've got to probably get involved with a Kickstarter campaign, and you went that route. Yes. So for me... The Kickstarter was a, an amazing platform because when I, I probably spent three years figuring out how I was going to make this film. And I thought in my mind, you know, who wouldn't want me to, <laughs> who wouldn't want to make this film with me? But when you go out there and you realize that there's gazillions of documentaries being made all the time and you know, I, you wouldn't even believe some of the things that were said to me when I first went out there and I was trying to, figure out how to do it because obviously the only obstacle is money. Other things, yeah, it's not my job and everyone that came on this project came, did it, but maintained their own jobs so we could try to get, um, get things done kind of under most people's budget. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I, I, I went in circles and I was like, God, if money is the only thing that's stopping me from making this film, what can I do? And somebody introduced me to Kickstarter. I guess 2012 was our first Kickstarter, and it was way different of a platform than it is now. Like now, a lot of everyone uses it for everything. So it was an amazing way to get us going and start the project. You did raise quite a bit of money. Were you surprised at how many people jumped on board this thing? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I. It's amazing because the the backers were not only just fans but also um, friends and family, and they and it was amazing that like we got everybody there. Sometimes I look at some of these Kickstars and like, how did they get you know hundreds of thousands of backers? This for some kind of like tech idea. Like where are they where are they finding these people? So for us, it was a very in house, a very family. It's always it's it's been a very family oriented thing, and it's been fun because. We had the Kickstarter before we filmed anything, and everybody that's helped to donate towards the project 
has been along with me on this journey. How did you know what total you needed to go forward with this? Oh my gosh, that it took research. Um, the hardest thing that you can't put a number on is what the music licensing will be. I mean, you right, know, right. You, you don't know that until you have a finished product. So you have to guess. So I had to overestimate a lot of things. Um, you know, I just got together with a bunch of people I know that are producers or have or work in the industry, and we they gave me templates, and we kind of just dropped templates in. And I worked originally on the first Kickstarter campaign. I worked with a um, a movie fundraising producer, and she kind of broke down the process of how it works. You know, she's like, don't try to raise all of your money at once because that just sounds really overwhelming to other people. Yeah. <laughs> if you tell them how much it's going to actually take, everyone's going to be like, oh, this girl's never going to make this movie. So that's why it was also stages having a second Kickstarter campaign. <laughs> Michelle, were you shocked at how much money is involved with music licensing? Yes. <laughs> to be honest with you, I that's where I am right now. So we're in the middle of processing music licensing and so it really depends right now a lot of it depends where it's going to end up you know and where it's going to be seen and that those numbers change every time an offer comes in for where the film will show so it's a huge one I mean basically (laughs) I was talking to my friend the other day and she's like oh well basically it's like you went to college for making movies film. <laughs> That's true. It really is true. And, you know, I, I talked to Peter Pardini not too long ago, who's doing the Chicago documentary. Yeah. And I think he's still shopping around for on the festival circuit. So he's his thing is ready to go and it's been ready to go for a long time. But you may indeed get yours out there before his is out there. Yeah, well, they premiered last weekend, I believe. Oh, they did? Okay. Yeah, they showed it at the Sedona Film Festival. Good. I'm glad to hear that. And I now, got a letter from uh, one guy that's a fan who, who's, who's been great, and he went up there and saw it and had very good words about it. It was very exciting. Good. Now, you've traveled. You've interviewed a lot of friends and family members. I'm assuming that you talked to all the founding members of the band. I did. Did you talk to Peter Cetera? I did. <laughs> wow, that's pretty good. Yeah, it's funny. Well, we, we, I did get Peter Cetera, and it's something actually that I haven't really um, promoted too much. But I guess it's a good time to talk about it now with everything that's going on. The Rock yeah. Show. Right. And things like that. Um, I wasn't going to, you know, just blow it up. <laughs> I got Peter Cetera. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, the, the one thing for me is that a lot of these guys in different phases of my life were close. You know, they were family friends. And as a young girl, um, Peter was a family friend and we all holidayed a lot together. So um, I knew that he wasn't very fond of, you know, always doing interviews about the band, talking about the band. So I had to, you know, talk with him and, and kind of, say, you know, I really, you know, it's for my dad and these kind of things. And we sat, we had a discussion and we talked about things and he's like, okay, I'll do an interview. So we sat down and did an interview that, um, it's funny too. The funny thing that we love so much is you interview all these different people and then all of a sudden they'll tell you a story that someone else told 
And so once you have three people tell the same story, oh, you're just like, oh, I can already imagine how we're going to edit this and what we're going to put together. <laughs> now you have three different interviews telling the same story. So Peter was one of those instances and added to another story <laughs> that two people had already told. So it was great. That's fantastic. I, I know that uh, the trailer is out there, and I took a look at that, and everybody's emotional. I think somebody said, you know, Michelle, you're just going to make a bunch of grown men cry. <laughs> <laughs> when you say the trailer, are you talking about on, on the Kickstarter? Yeah, and I, I think one clip in particular I saw was, was Lee Lochnane just getting all emotional, and, and Jimmy Pankow just saying how your dad was the heart and soul of the band. I just announced actually we sent out a newsletter this morning that we've actually cut now a trailer based on the finished film and we're going to show that exclusively to the members lounge on march 21st which is something that you can still join on the website terrycath.com yeah go to terrycath.com and join the members lounge and it's like a little treat i you know the members lounge is a place for people that back the film and I wanted to, I was trying to figure out ways to give back through the Kickstarter campaign. Yeah. I think that's one of the biggest challenges. How do you give back to people? And obviously not spend a gazillion dollars, because then what's the point if you're <laughs> just gifting all this stuff and then you spend half of it? So the Members Lounge, for me, was a great way to give back to people um, that donated with, you know, with very minimal, you know, no cost. It doesn't cost me anything to, to post on there. So I'm always trying to think of things I can give to them for giving back and say thank you. So I thought showing them the trailer would be a fun thing. That's a great idea. Yeah, they're board members. You you certainly are doing yeah. a great <laughs> thing for them. How old were you, do you think, when you realized that people were comparing your dad to Hendrix and Clapton and, and that those guys were marveling at your dad's playing? I, I know that Hendrix said that, hey, he's better than I am. Yeah. You know, it's funny, um, I must have been, I mean, it must have been when I was like 14 and I started discovering Jimi Hendrix myself and, right. you know, all the music of that era and like falling in love with that and becoming kind of a music person myself. And at that age, when I was discovering music and becoming hungry for collecting music, it's when it all kind of clicks. Because for me, people tell me stories about my dad and they'll tell me these things. And they, you know, know, all of a sudden I'm like, oh, that's what they meant. This is what they're talking about. Okay. So probably 14, which is when I started collecting music and vinyl myself. And did your dad and Hendrix ever get together? Did they spend some time together at all? They did. They did. In fact, see, here's the thing. (laughs) (laughs) Here's the thing. And this is why, like, when we started editing the film, we had, we had, cutting out so much and interviews are long. I mean, the interviews are so long and right. take nuances and um, I would get excited because I'd say, well, that's okay. Cause I have the members lounge and I can post these stories and another time. So as we were like shedding stuff and bringing the film from three hours to, you know, under two hours, I was like, that's okay. I, I was upset at first and I was like, okay, I can, sh- I can still share this stuff for years to come. I mean, this content for years to come. So the Jimi Hendrix stories, which originally, when we did an original string out from the film, I think the Hendrix section was like 20 minutes long. And we had to look at it and go, right, 
what are the important stories here? Because this is like, we obviously can't have this be a 20-minute part of this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the Hendrix stories are great because, you know, Hendrix took them on tour and they opened up for them and they spent a lot of time together. And, you know, Gershio and Satara all, uh, and, you know, the horn section who I interviewed all together all shared stories from their various times crossing paths. I guess I should write some of those ones down and pass them on. And you know that there's always uh, in future editions of if there's a DVD, these will be great extras, won't they? Yeah. So what did family and friends say about Terry growing up? I know that you talked to uh, his brother. Yeah. Another part of the film that we kind of, you know, when you're editing it down, I wanted to show where my dad had came from, like the, the family he was from, the community he was surrounded from. And it was funny because it was really important for my uncle to meet me at their elementary school for some reason. And that wasn't something I wanted to film. I was like, I just want to meet you there. This is kind of going to take up more time. And for my uncle, he took it very serious. We met and he had literally put together a three ring binder with pictures. And he met, he wanted me to meet him at the elementary school and he wanted to talk about their time there and, you know, the music, music courses that were there. And to me, what's always interesting is like the history of something. So you have a neighborhood, what communities were there, what cultural backgrounds were there, what were the families like? And it was just, it seemed to be such a like 50s quote unquote typical, you know, the kids met up, walked home and moms and dads were there working and grafting. And then my, their summers were spent by the lake in Wisconsin, um, being boys and shooting and fishing and things like that. A very, you know, very solid, great backdrop. A great Midwest upbringing, sure. It was kind of important for me to, to put that out there for him because it's almost like you don't have someone with this really, really messed up background. And I think nowadays it's like what you, know, you hear about people being um, addicts or troubled in any way. Everyone's like, okay, let's look at their, their backgrounds. Or they have been troubled backgrounds and things like that. And my dad didn't really have that. He's just a cool, solid guy. And um, music was really important to him at a very young age. The Chicago music scene in itself is another one that's just so alive. It's so cool. I mean, I could have done a whole documentary just about that. <laughs> you can just hear the Chicago blues in your dad's playing it. I know that one of the most important people that you interviewed through this whole process was your mom. You ha actually had your mom on camera, and that had to be emotional for both of you, right? Yeah. Were you able to kind of separate yourself from being her daughter and put on the reporter hat and maybe ask a little more in-depth and tougher questions as a result of that? Yeah, I mean, I definitely was. And then also just wanted to, I mean, I think the main thing was just wanting to see her perspective on everything because a lot of things I had heard was that things were rough at the time. I mean, why wouldn't they be <laughs> if you have one person, your partner is kind of off doing his own thing and it's not really conducive to family life? Um, of course, you'd be upset. So, and then it's tricky because it's like your mom, you know, I had a way of approaching every interview because I knew it was a tough subject. Like when 
we got to a certain point in an interview, there's an inevitable point of where this is going. And I wanted to um, approach it in a certain way. And so with my mom, it was kind of the same thing. And I know it was hard for her. So with any interview, it was just about time and allowing us to talk long enough to the point where she felt a little bit more comfortable because you're sitting in a room with people, <laughs> mm. two camera guys and a sound guy and just took time. I think the longer you sit and talk with somebody, you kind of forget your environment and we were able to talk. And did you talk to her at the Caribou Ranch where the band had recorded? Yeah. Well, we actually didn't. We didn't do our interview there. Yeah, we did our interview here in L.A., but... Uh, I don't want to go too far into the Caribou Ranch segment, but that was a, a really, really emotional and beautiful trip. I don't know if you ever saw the the TV special they did from the Caribou Ranch. It was a Dick Clark production. Yes. Okay, yeah, I'm, I assume that you did. It's not out there. You have to really kind of look for it on YouTube, I guess. I, I always loved that, and that area just looked phenomenal, just beautiful. Oh, yeah. It was a beautiful, I mean, beautiful. What a, what a setting to put a recording studio yeah. and people out and, and record stuff. It's a dream. It's hard to believe they got any work done there, I guess. <laughs> so you sat down with Joe Walsh. What did he have to say about your dad? Well, it's interesting because my mom, you know, she just kept saying, she's like, we're going to get Joe Walsh. you got to talk to Joe Walsh because they actually knew each other. And I guess um, CTA and James Gang were kind of touring around at the same time. He was probably the only um, kind of famous guitarist that I interviewed that was there at the time and knew my dad. And it was just cool because he has, I mean, he's such an animated guy and he's such a cool guy and he has such a great knowledge of the music. He was able to talk about my dad as a personal friend and kind of like, you know, his how he knew my dad and how cool he was as a guy. But then he's also able to break down the way he played. Um, one of the things that, again, that didn't make it in the film as you're shaving away is he <laughs> talked about how one time my dad came up to him when he was in the James gang and was like, oh man, it must be nice just to be you and two other musicians and that's it. Because, you know, obviously with Chicago, it's like you have uh, seven members all equal, they right. themselves all equal share in, in decision-making. So, I thought that was cute, or not cute, but that, that it was cool that he was thinking of it in that way. Like, oh, God, that must be kind of easy yeah. to be like a drummer on a bassist. It's funny. <laughs> trying to remember if it was Lee Lochnane who told me that your dad kind of played the guitar upside down, or there was something different about his playing style. Oh, gosh, I have not heard that one. <laughs> Lee was telling me that there were a few days where he wanted your dad to teach him how to play a little bit, and it was very difficult because the style was just different from the way that everyone else was doing it. Yeah, and I think... Uh... I mean, that's that's the one thing people say is like, sometimes I just listen to something, I have no idea what he's doing. The fact that I think like his famous guitar is pulled, his guitar that is pulled apart and kind of made back together from other guitars is, is pretty crazy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we do get into some tech talk in the film. Right. That, we, that was kind of important for us to find out stuff. These people could tell us some things so we could give a little bit more knowledge because it is a documentary, you know? Is that guitar still around? Because it was pretty famous Fender Telecaster, I believe it was, with all those stickers on it. Somebody... Yeah, I mean, that, that guitar is like, 
it was one of those things everyone always asked me about. I don't have it. So it, it became a character in itself because people kept asking about it. Is it true that your parents met at the Caribou Ranch? No, they actually met in Los Angeles, but fell in love at the Caribou Ranch. There you go. <laughs> I know that your dad could read basic music. He went to school and kind of got into that in school, but he was actually one of those fortunate souls who mainly learned by ear. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. So he never really wrote too much. I mean, um, in the second Kickstarter, I actually gave some of his compositions, copies of his compositions as a gift. And for those people that ended up with them, it's interesting because he didn't write music like a traditional way. Um, a lot of it was just written out so that he could know or be at least be able to explain it to other people. So, yeah, it, ever since he was little, it was just this gift he had to be able to just play, hear something and play it. Did you talk to the guys when you talked to Robert and Lee and all the rest of the founding members about how difficult it was for them to regroup after your dad was gone? Because there was definitely a missing piece. I know that they tried in the beginning to fill, but it just didn't quite work. They do fine now, all these years later. But did they talk about maybe even breaking the band up at that point? funny, you know, I think that the one thing that that was probably the one thing they never thought to do. Um, no one that I talked to had mentioned that that was something <clears throat> that that was even an option. I think that they just wanted to keep moving forward. And one of the things they did when they first sat down and started figuring out what I was going to ask was I looked at the body of work and the years at which all these albums came out. So the next album after my dad's passing is not that long after. It kind of turned around quite quickly, which, you know, they may say maybe that was too fast and they should have taken some time off. But I think that Chicago wanted to keep going. Chicago is the band, you know? Yeah. They wanted to keep that entity going and rightly so. I mean, I mean, they're Chicago. <laughs> they yeah. Keep going. Well, and they were, they were very prolific. I think it's amazing that they overcame that and kept going. I don't know if I could do that. That that would be difficult. The fact that they marched on is very commendable. And it's probably something that your dad would have wanted, I suppose. Yeah. I loved your dad's voice, and when I hear a song, like not only the early stuff, but when I hear a song like Little One, now I know he didn't write that, but when I hear that, I know who he's singing that about, and yeah. you, you, have to, you have to get maybe a little choked up when you hear that song every now and then. Oh, yeah. It's, I mean, sometimes I just can't listen to it. It has to be a time and a place. Because <laughs> it's like, I never want to listen to it just as background music, because it is. It's a beautiful song. You've talked to a lot of people, Michelle, over the last few months. You've done a lot of interviews, and you're you're getting a lot of fan support and comments and people maybe who knew him and have nice little stories that they have shared with you. You must feel so much more connected with your dad after doing this film. Oh, 100%. A hundred percent. And I think I was worried for the longest time because I was so involved in the technicality of making a movie. I, I became worried for a while that I would miss out on the actual experience I was trying to have, which was getting to know my dad, because, you know, organizing trip to Chicago and interviewing people in two days with a crew and I'm the person in charge of everything. Plus, I have to get into the moment because what's the point of filming it all if I'm not going to be in the moment with the people that I'm going to see, it was a huge challenge. I think I didn't even realize it 
until we were editing editing together after our after our first assembly and we were kind of editing out and looking over everything and I'm like just watching it going, Oh my God, I did all these things. And wow, I really, you know, it's like I got a chance to take it all in and yeah, I definitely feel like I know him. I spent time with him and, you know, getting to know some of the people that were his good friends has been amazing. And you needed to hear a lot of that stuff, too. And and I, I really don't think anyone else could have done this project because of your not only your genuinely curious nature regarding your dad, but I've heard I think it was Robert Lamb who's who said in one clip that I could only tell you these stories. It, yeah, it's really great. And I, and I look forward to this. The name of the documentary is The Terry Kath Experience. We should go to uh, terrycath.com for any updates and, and subscribe to the newsletter. Yes, that's the best the best way to stay informed. Our Facebook page as well. I can't wait to see this film because it sounds like the band opened up about all the stuff you would only tell a family member. Apparently among the artifacts that Michelle found was a Super 8 film that Terry shot while the band was on tour in the 1970s. Kind of a glimpse of the world through his eyes. The Terry Kath Experience available now on Blu-ray and DVD. That is the end of this episode of the Fake Show Podcast. Thank you for listening as always. I'm Jim Tofty, and I'll see you back here next time. Take the Fake Show on the road by listening on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, and thefakeshow.com. Don't you ever-